yes! We made it through the first two episodes. It was so exciting. I, everybody's very excited about this whole thing. Oh, hi, it's Pete Pomisano. And welcome to part three of the very probably incomplete history of Buffalo Theater, episode three. And if you missed episodes one and two with Steve Cishan and Ron Emke, I cannot recommend this strongly enough. Those two guys are so knowledgeable, I felt dumb all the way around. Every minute I was talking to them, they just added so much information about Buffalo history. And to connect it to the podcast, A History of Buffalo Theater, was just fascinating. And I know I use that word a lot, but really, go back and listen to the first two episodes where we cover the 1800s up to 1959. You may think that you may not be interested in that, and you're only interested in the more modern stuff, but you will learn a lot. And not only will you learn a lot, but you'll you'll like the fact that you picked up so much information. Okay, enough about that. If you're still in the dark about what I'm doing here, I am trying to cover a history of Buffalo theater from the 1800s right up to modern times. And I am going to put some emphasis, of course, on the theaters that have survived and thrived and been influential in the Buffalo theater scene. And I'm going to mention everybody I can, but I also have interviewed all of the people who were there. And so I am going to insert within the podcast those interviews, those sound bites from those people. And Tony Chase is going to be a, a big part of this. And he said something interesting to me about these personal histories from the people I'm going to interview and the people who will be inserted into the podcast. And he said it's important to remember that oral histories are always, inevitably, a happy amalgam of fact and mythologizing. Not that anyone is going to try to tell stories or make up lies, but the impulse is to make ourselves the heroes of our own stories. It's, it's as human as the impulse towards storytelling itself. And in the people I'm interviewing, these are theater practitioners. <laughs> these are expert storytellers. So part of the fun of these histories will be separating fact from myth and history from wishful thinking as we hear the key players in the history of Buffalo Theater. And that's what you're going to hear in the next several episodes. Now, I also have to tell you that I've already been getting comments, both good and bad, criticisms, fair criticisms, because I told you from the beginning this was not going to be a complete history. I was doing the best I can when I was researching from my couch during COVID, but a buddy of mine comes up to me and he says, oh, you dropped the ball, you dropped the ball, you never talked about how Charles Dickens appeared in Buffalo reading from his works in 1867 or something, and I thought, well, well you know what, I, I haven't mentioned thousands of performers who performed in Buffalo. Buffalo was a place where everybody wanted to stop. The hottest place between New York and Chicago was Buffalo, New York. Anyway, he, he also congratulated me on doing a, you know, a modest job, but he criticized me for that. And then he handed me this book called The History of Buffalo Music and Entertainment by Rick Falkowski, which I had not even known about. And I've just started looking through now. And of course, it's too late to add anything from Rick Falkowski's book right now. 
But I'll tell you, it's mostly about the music business and music and entertainment venues, although it does mention a lot of theaters, and there are some really cool pictures of theaters in there early on. But it focuses more on Buffalo music and entertainment venues. But what an interesting book. What pictures are in here. It's, it's amazing. And, well, I just wanted to mention that, that I'll be going through that, and if we do have an update to the podcast in the near future... I might be putting in parts from Rick Falkowski in the future uh, with his kind permission, and I will notify him first if I do that. Today, we start off in 1962. We left off in 1959. We jump ahead a few years to Leon Seidel buying the Shays Buffalo. But before we start with that, I have a little insert that I'd like to play. I was interviewing Tony Chase, and he has a tendency to really run with the ball, and he sometimes you know, ends up going a little bit off track. But every time I thought, oh man, this is gold. I should be saving all of this. In this particular case, I happened to be talking about an old administrator of mine who, who didn't read fiction, who didn't see the point, and didn't understand my fascination with theater, and really didn't understand the point of that. And Tony seemed both dumbfounded and actually a little bit hurt. So I saved it to share with you. So before we start the timeline, Let's listen to a little clip where Tony Chase talks to us about why theater is so important and what is the point of it. What, what is the point of it? I, I just, what is the point of empathy? That is the question that you're asking right now, you know, as we're speaking, and someday this interview will be a long time ago. But right now, I'm, I'm teaching at a college, and at a very diverse college, where Black Lives Matter is heavily at the forefront of everybody's consciousness. And recent events in our country, and someday when we're dead, people can look that up in whatever way they're looking things up. Today, we would Google. I don't know what you people in the future will be doing. But you can find it and see what was happening in America now. And just last week, George Floyd, you can look that up, because you will forget who that was. And there was a conviction, which was a very, very, very rare conviction of a police officer for sitting on someone's neck until he'd killed him. And after a sequence of this happening, primarily to African-American people, I'd say men, but you know, not, not always men, getting killed. And young people coming into this world that all of us before have created, this is very much in their mind. And I have theater students, and I was talking to them because I teach theater history. So what's the first entirely African-American produced play on Broadway. Oh, shuffle along. No, no, not by a long shot. It's earlier than that. But the interplay between diverse people, between people of all races and all religions and genders to create the unique phenomenon of the American theater, it's what makes the American theater uniquely what it is. So I'd ask the students, you know, Queen Elizabeth had a bad week last week. You could look that up, Queen Elizabeth II, whose husband, Prince Philip, died after about 110 years. So I said, okay, we're talking, do you think that if we, she saw Lorraine Hansberry's Raisin in the Sun, could she identify with that play in any way? Students, oh, no, absolutely not. I went, oh, really? You don't think she could? You don't think she's had children who disappointed her? You don't think she's ever wanted something for the world that wasn't going to happen? You don't think that she looks at racial division in her country and it doesn't bother her. Do you really think that? Do you really think that she has no capacity for empathy just because she's 
a very, very rich white woman. We don't know her, you know? You can't look at anybody and say that this person has no empathy for that person. I said to my students, should I think that you, know, you have no capacity to empathize with me? You haven't lived my life, I know. And no, I haven't lived your life, but you tell me things and I take them into myself. And I look at playwrights, creators of theater. I'm astonished at what Tennessee Williams writes about women. I'm astonished by what Sean O'Casey write about, writes about women. I look at Dream Girls, the Tony Award night, where a black choreographer and a white choreographer come together and accept the Tony Award together. And the representation of the world in the theater is done in broad brushstrokes. And sometimes, through empathy, someone can write about someone else's life and get it right. And it's magical. And the most important empathy from the audience that I go and I enter someone else's life always and I look at the world in a new way and it's, you know, why every culture has developed storytelling. Every culture has developed poetry and the human capacity to empathize. And it is why the theater or some version of it will always, always be important. And I feel it's very, very important right now. And I see my students needing to tell their stories and needing to see the stories of others. It holds us together. And I guess that's a good place to stop for today. Actually, Tony, it's a really good place to start for today. And there's the clock. The ticking clock that signifies the passage of time. And there's the music. The theme music that's going to carry us through this entire podcast series. Now, you won't hear the music when I have interviews with people and I'm asking questions in between their responses. But when you do hear the music start up again, that means I'm returning to the timeline to continue forward and pick up where we left off. And today, for part three, we're going to start in 1962 when Leon Seidel buys Shays Buffalo. But he goes bankrupt after some short success, and that led to the city taking over for lack of property tax payment. Their plan was to tear it down, but the Friends of Buffalo protected it in its contents when Lowe's, who was then operating the theater, threatened to strip it of its organ, its chandeliers, and other appointments. They and Comptroller George O'Connell helped oversee the revitalization of the structure. And I asked Tony Chase, did he know who this George O'Connell was? Was he connected in some way to Mary Kate O'Connell? Here's Tony to explain. That is her father. And their deeds were quite heroic. They even like lived in the building and, and hid artifacts intentionally. It was like the French resistance, that it was uh, really a grassroots rescue of a building. They had seen numerous other buildings fall. The Lafayette Theater, for example, which was on Lafayette Square, People valued Shays because it was ornate, but its contribution to the history of vaudeville had been minor compared to the Hippodrome because it was built with the financing from the Paramount Movie Studio in 1926 to screen, at that time, silent movies, which is why it had the most spectacular organ. Wurlitzer was local, and it had literally all the bells and whistles. Literally, it has bells and it has whistles. It has all of that. 
Michael Murphy is well-versed on that. He has done his due diligence and brought himself up to date. About the history of those people, somebody who is very elderly now who remembers is Harold Cohen, the architect, former chair of the architecture department at, at UB, who lives in city center. And he has memories of the people who rescued Shays. Of course, he has a great interest in architecture and um, in saving architecture. Shays exists not for that Broadway series for which we all know it, but to save that building. That is what Shays O'Connell does. They rescue and maintain the building. They did want it to be used. No, they wanted it to be used as a theater. They saw it as a you know, downtown, as a potential entertainment um, mecca. It took them a while to develop exactly what that would look like. And it isn't for many years that they build the, it's the big shows, the Phantom of the Operas, the Miss Saigons, that they build on to, to, to be able to accommodate those shows, as did performing arts centers across the country. Phantom of the Opera, with its guarantee of gazillion dollars, so many cities across the country, that is the show that gave municipalities the courage to go ahead and expand and commit to their downtown arts centers. So then we pick up in 1963 with the opening of Murphy's Omega Cafe, 369 Pearl Street in Buffalo. It was an actor hangout. I'm old enough to know that I hung out there once. Not in 1963. I was a little bit too young for then. But Murphy's Omega Cafe became a theater hangout. Long before Flynn's, there was Murphy's. And it was known affectionately as Jew Murphy's. I don't mean that in any derogatory way, but everybody who spoke about it to me called it Jew Murphy's. 1964, the Creative Associates of the University of Buffalo's Center of Creative and Performing Arts is founded by the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra music director, Lucas Foss, and uh, the UB department chairman, Alan Sapp, and they brought experimental music to the area. Buffalo, and in particular UB, became an international hub for avant-garde music. Now, why is this important to our Buffalo theater history? Because this time became sort of a, uh, Buffalo became sort of an artistic hub, and these artists, these musicians, were seen all over Buffalo. Uh, Terry Doran, who you'll hear a little bit later on, told me that this helped Buffalo become a, the place to be for creativity. It, it was one of a group of geographic pockets that provided fertile ground for these concepts and methodologies of connectivity and collaboration and made Buffalo a site of radical creativity. And now in 1965, the Town Casino closes. The Town Casino was a center of entertainment in Buffalo. Anybody who was anybody played the Town Casino. Bing Crosby, Bob Hope, all the greats. And then, the very same year, 1965, under Neil Dubrock, the Studio Theater takes over the building, and under Neil DeBrock becomes the Studio Arena Theater, an equity house in Buffalo. They move from their former home on Lafayette to Main Street in Buffalo. Opening night, October 7th, Colleen Dewhurst stars in Eugene O'Neill's A Moon for the Misbegotten. But Neil DeBrock took Studio Theater, the best local theater showcase for actors, away from Buffalo actors in favor of big-name equity stars. We have Mrs. Ann Moot, wife of Wells Moot, 
who was the board president at the time, and she's going to tell you her memories of it. But first, to introduce you to Anne, here's Tony. It's very interesting, the things that she knew and when she knew them and the things that she did not know. You know, there she is on the executive board of Studio Arena Theatre. Her thinking may have evolved since in the heat of it, because, of course, she was both criticizing it and in the odd position of both criticizing it and defending it. And that's very, very hard. And she was great champion of the theater. They should have had more like Anne. There were a few at the end. And, of course, these people who didn't care about it when it went down, they just like rats from the sinking ship, of course. And now here's Anne to tell you a little bit about her husband, Wells, and the studio arena's first artistic director, Neil Dubrock. Well, I know he was president of the theater for many, many years, starting with when he came downtown. But I don't know if he was president at the time that, that Neil first came there. I, I kind of suspect that he may have been, yeah. I have this enormous, great big glass frame piece that has all kinds of pictures of Wells in various, at various times with various people. It was given to him as when he was honored in 2000. He was given an, an outstanding performance award from the theater, and he got this award. And there's a picture, 1965, out in front of Studio Arena downtown, and it has the marquee, Moon for the Misbegotten, and there are three people in the picture, Neil DeBrock, Wells Moot, my husband, and Nelson Rockefeller. His grandmother, Carrie Van Ness Moot, married to Adelbert Moot, who was a regent of the state of New York in his day. He was a very prominent man. And she was, she was a fascinating, prominent woman. She was one of the first patrons of studio theater. She was a friend of Lars Potter and Jane Keeler, going way back to the very beginning. So the Moot connection is way back. I thought that was fascinating when I found that out. And now here's a little bit about how Studio Arena started from the studio theater after Neil DeBrock's arrival in Buffalo. I married Wells in 63. Right after that, Neil DeBrock came to Buffalo and he directed something called Little Mary Sunshine at the Richfield Theater. And evidently some people saw this. So then there was a discussion about having Neil come to Studio Theater and direct a piece called Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. And it was a roaring success. People came in droves to see it. People came back and saw it two and three times. I don't think that the the people running Studio Theater were thinking about a professional theater. I think that Neil saw the light, so to speak. And the, and the town casino was available at that time. And so everything was, you might say, the conditions were just perfect for growing something, you know, because he was the catalyst to make that happen. Neil, he, he was, was very good at what he did. So a very successful equity theater opens in Buffalo. Tony's going to tell you a little bit more about why and how it happened. And then we'll learn more about Neil DeBrock and his downfall from Anne Moot. That begins in the 1920s, even all across the country. The little theater movement of this country was largely a community theater movement. A lot of what goes out on the road, star power, commercial product, disposable plays. And it was a period of time when American theater was really taking itself seriously. Eugene O'Neill was happening. Nobel Prize, Pulitzer Prize, quality American playwright, the first um, to really be taken very, very seriously. So these theaters across the country, when there was, after the war, World War II, public money for the arts, because there was a huge campaign to promote 
American democracy through the arts. And this was bipartisan. And it was, you know, show the world the greatness of America as reflected in, in the arts. And lots of public money uh, available. And this is the beginning of the resident regional theater movement. And Buffalo's theater is really inspired by this movement with a specific connection to arena stage in Washington. But on the board of both theaters is Peter Andrews, still living. And Peter and Joan had homes in, they were Buffalonians who had a home, lived in Myrna Loy's old house in Georgetown, Washington. They also had a farm, a beautiful farm, 13 miles from the White House, where they had retreats for the arena stage staff to plan. And they were at the forefront of that. And so they wanted, as did others, they were supportive of the idea of a resident regional theater in their hometown, Buffalo. And so they supported this, and Peter was on the board, and you know other people like Bob Suedos on the board, like the Moots. You can see the list of people, and it was very much part of America of the moment. But along with this, Neil de Brock, who is not from here, he decided that it should be a proper equity theater. He was brilliant, and without him, there would have been no studio arena theater. So I thought I would ask Anne what it was like. What it was like that first opening night, what all the opening nights were like. They were full of glitter and glamour, I'm sure, and Anne did remember quite a bit about it. The grand opening was, of course, they reported all the social stuff, you know, that happened. There were parties at the Garrett Club and the Saturn Club, and I remember them describing what I was wearing and what other women were wearing, which they don't do any of that anymore, of course. Most of the time we went on opening night because we enjoyed the, you know, it was festive and there were lots of parties and uh, social things to, to enjoy and people to meet. And then we did get sometimes if it was, you know, like with Tennessee Williams, sometimes the playwright was there on opening night. And so we got to meet a lot of interesting people. Arthur Miller came one time, death of a salesman. Arthur Miller was here in Buffalo for death of a salesman. Wow. So tell us your thoughts about Neil DeBrock, Anne. Neil was very easy to, to talk to. He was very uh, a very likable guy. He was he had a lot of charm. He was highly intelligent. He was always pushing the limit, and that's one reason he finally got fired by by Franz Stone, who was then chairman of the board. I didn't. I don't even know how that all happened. Somewhere along the line, Franz Stone came into the picture. Of course, he was very wealthy benefactor. And so he became chairman of the board, and they moved over to the Palace Theater. And to open the Palace Theater, they did a play that they had done over at 681. Funny face, right? And we're talking a long time ago. He spent 450000 on that production. I don't know why that number sticks in my head, but it does. On the stage, there was a Stutz Bearcat. I don't know where he got it. And they spent a fortune on shoes, dancing shoes. I remember that was a big deal. And of course, they lost money, even though they did very well with it. It wasn't as popular, strange but true. Well, everybody had seen it, that redo of Funny Face at the palace when they moved over. That was kind of a punch in the eye. You know, I'm not saying that, that Neil hadn't maybe overstepped his bounds. You know, he had connections in New York and Hollywood, and he knew people. I mean, John Voight acted at Studio Arena before anybody had ever heard of him. You know, a lot of people were there. Anyway, that was Neil's downfall. And the Studio Arena saga will continue shortly. But first, let's go back to the timeline. It's 1966. Kevin Elliott, a local promoter, convinces Harry Altman 
to convert the nightclub Glen Casino into a rock and roll venue, the Inferno, where many name rock bands play until it burns and is destroyed in 1968. In 1967, April 6th, the original Palace Burlesque, spelled B-U-R-L-E-S-K because that's the way Dewey Michaels liked it, he sold it in order for the block to be raised for the Church Street extension, right there on Main Street. So plans immediately began to build a new burlesque house on Main at Tupper. And you know what's coming. When that closes up, that's where Studio Arena moves several years later. In 1968, the African Cultural Center, now headed by Edward Lawrence, changes the name of its theater. Celeste Tisdale and Ed Smith rename it the Paul Robeson Theater. 1969, the dedication of the Taylor Theater at the Keenan Center in Lockport. And in 1971, the Buffalo Black Drama Workshop is incorporated. It's located at 1762 Main Street, and it was founded by Ed Smith, a now acclaimed theater director after he arrived in Buffalo to work at then Studio Arena doing children's theater. Now, I have to warn you, this might get a little confusing because we have two gentlemen talking about two different theaters, the Buffalo Black Drama Workshop and the Paul Robeson Theater, which branches out from the African Cultural Center before it was even the African American Cultural Center. We have Celeste Tisdale and we have Ed Smith. And I also have to warn you that the sound quality is terrible because neither of these gentlemen could zoom. And so this was recorded off of a landline. So you can imagine, I did the best I could to try to EQ it, but I really couldn't do much with it. So please bear with me and I hope you enjoy this. Remember, these are two separate phone calls with two separate gentlemen talking separately about the same issue. I tried to jigsaw puzzle it together. Let's start with Celeste Tisdale. Ed Lawrence is the person who started the African Culture Center somewhere around 1958. That was the beginning of his idea. He's done some acting on the uh, Broadway stage and off-Broadway. Ed Lawrence is the person who started the African American Culture Center. It was just called the African Culture Center when it was started. So it was more of a neighborhood program for children to come, young people to come there to involve in arts and crafts. African dance and music and theater grew out of it later on because Ed Lawrence was very much uh, in theater and very much interested in theater. And uh, there you are. So now here's Ed Smith to tell us his portion of the story and how he came to Buffalo and then took over at the African Cultural Center. Ed Lawrence took over at uh, Paul Robeson Theater. Ed Lawrence was working at Studio Arena. So he could not hold the job up. So Studio Arena uh, had a sort of a national audition in New York. I was living in New York at that time. And I got the job. I was working in the children's theater. You know, it was a professional company that uh, went to different schools to do these little children's plays. And I met Ed Lawrence. And so I did some workshops, you know, at the Paul Robeson Theater. Then after Ed Lawrence left, Celeste Tisdale took over. And Celeste made me artistic director. And I was, you know, artistic director, I would just say for about a, about a year. I was the artistic director for the theater. And it wasn't called the Paul Robeson Theater. It was just the African Cultural Center. 
And now Celeste gives it a little bit of his take on Ed Smith. He was in the theater department at UB. I was at Buffalo, I was at Buffalo State. I think one of the things that does come to mind is that Ed Smith, he came out of Philadelphia, but Ed Smith knew a lot of people in theater, in black theater, as you know, in theater. Philadelphia, not too far from New York. Ed Smith he knew these people. He knew Imam Baraka and other people, Ed Bullard and other people in the theater. So when he came to Buffalo, he had an interesting, a very good background in black theater. So he was a perfect guy for it, really. <laughs> and now back to Ed Smith, who tells us a little bit about Celeste. Celeste is there took over the African Cultural Center. The name for the theater wasn't changing until years later. We decided that we would give the name of the theater. It's Paul Robeson Theater. And finally, Celeste clarifies how the theater at the African Cultural Center became known as the Paul Robeson Theater. When I took over in 77, I was teaching at the university, and so they needed a director and I was recommended, I believe Ed Lawrence recommended me, because he was leaving. And when I took over, I said, this, this theater needs a name. We can't keep calling it the Africa. Let's give it a name that's more specific and pointed. And Paul Robeson was one of my heroes. I think because it had a name, it had a specific identity. And that identity was not only a, with a person in the theater, but he was also a person who, as you well know, had a strong feeling about black art, black freedom, civil rights, and stuff like that, and his history goes all the way back. The focus at the beginning was always black writers, uh, black theater. I don't remember it being anything other than plays that said something about the black experience. And now Ed Smith clarifies how he helped change the whole focus of the Paul Robeson Theater. Me coming from, from New York, uh, I was really geared into black theater. I was doing things that dealt with Baraka, Amir Baraka, who was Leroy Jones, Ron Milner, and all of those guys. Now, they wasn't doing many news type plays at the African Culture Center when I went there. And I stated that it was, an, it was important that we do black writers. And we started doing more, I started implementing more plays about African-Americans coming from New York and having the problem of what was going on in New York and what was going on in the country, that very few people were doing plays by black writers or even hiring black actors. If they did, they would give them some type of part that, you know, wasn't really about their culture. So then I asked Ed to explain a little something about a theater I knew very little about. I had no idea it even existed. The Buffalo Black Drama Workshop. Well, that started because we were in need for a black theater who would deal with revolutionary plays. That's what we were calling it at that time. Yeah, Raisin in the Sun was done, but it wasn't a revolutionary play. We were dealing with periods of the revolutionary period. And uh, what I did was found a little space on Main Street, and I started having workshops. And then we developed that into the Black Drama Workshop. So uh, we started doing plays, uh, plays there, you know, which was a small theater. It only seated about 65, 60, 65 people. But uh, we knew we had an audience, and we toured a lot. 
because we were more into the revolutionary period. Celeste was a poet, and Celeste uh, set up a poet workshop at the Black Drama Workshop. So we got money, well, I, I would say he got money to do a workshop at Attica. So he was going up to Attica doing uh, this uh, writer's workshop. I would say about six months later, uh, I was going up to Attica doing an acting workshop at Attica. And that was all coming from uh, the Black Drama Workshop. I'm proud of everything that took place at the Black Drama Workshop. I'm proud of it that we had a chance to uh, work with young people who, and when I say young people, we had a children's workshop who moved around to some of the uh, libraries during the play, and that was good. Uh, I like the idea that the folks that were part of the Black Drum Workshop, many of them, they went on and got their education, they got their degree. There were good people that left that theater, you know, wow. so when I look at the jobs that the folks did get from this theater, and we still talk about it when I run into them, I still would say the Black Drama Workshop was the best thing I've ever done in theater. And now Ed has some final thoughts looking back on his accomplishments with the Paul Robeson Theater and the Buffalo Black Drama Workshop. You see, our culture, but all of a sudden, you know, we were getting whites coming down to our theater. You know, we were getting rave reviews on some of the plays that we did. So that, that was, you know, really wonderful to see that and be part of that. You know, when it's time for me to leave this earth, I just want to let it be known that I was very proud of what I did with the Paul Robinson Theater and uh, my own theater, you know, the Black Drama Workshop. So I hope that made sense to you. We had two people talking about two different theater experiences, both stemming off from the African Cultural Center before it was ever the African American Cultural Center, we had Celeste Tisdale and Ed Smith. And I hope I made sense out of it for you because I think that they were an incredibly important aspect of Buffalo Theater. And now we can move on to 1971, when the Courier Express newspaper established the Spotlight Awards in their focus section of the Sunday paper. Now, this was for professional and community theater shows and performers. The practice seems to have ended like after the 1978 awards. I'm not sure exactly when, but these were very important because everybody I know, including yours truly, won a spotlight award for either professional theater or dinner theater or community theater. And when I went back and looked at all of the names, boy, <laughs> there are a lot of familiar names there, including, you know, Phil Nurzer and Eileen Dugan and David Lamb and all sorts of people. So I think it's kind of significant that 1971 established the Courier Express Spotlight Awards in their Focus magazine. Now, moving on to 1972. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the first of the Big 12 or Big 13 or Big 10 or whatever. The first of the major theaters, the major theaters that had influence, the major theaters that survived and thrived. Roz Kramer, who unfortunately left us in 2017, Roz Kramer and Tony Smith Wilson found the Theater of Youth at Damon College, which was formerly 
Rosary Hill College. Here's what Tony Chase has to say about that. Well, I've been told the stories again and again, and the last person remaining who can tell the story is Meg Quinn, because she was a student at Rosary Hill, now Damon. It's a great story, and they've also documented it in the documentary, which is a very nice documentary about theater of youth. I know many a tale of people who kept toy afloat. Buffalo United Artists, A My Name is Alice, kept toy afloat because they were renting, and Colleen Fahey would say, can we have the whole month in advance? And they were making so much money with Alice that they would bring cash and give it to them to keep toy afloat. And then there'd been another time when they got behind Sonia. Sonia was a West Side girl, and you're Italian. We look after each other. According to Sonia, man shows up with a brown paper bag with cash, and she says, "Well, who do we acknowledge? Who do we? Who? Who's the donor?" Who? She's. I was never here. <laughs> Toy, the little engine that could. It's that should be their signature show, the little engine that could, because they just keep chugging along. Yeah, there are lots of stories, and I imagine there is either truth to these stories, or that some of them are actually true. So it seems only right that at this point, 1972, we hear from Meg Quinn, who, as Tony said, was there at the beginning and can give us some first-hand information about the founding and the continuation of Toy. Well, I was one of her students at that time at Damon. So I was one of the original members with, with, uh, with the company. So Roz was... The, basically the acting teacher. In the, there was a BFA theater arts program at Rosary Hill College at the time. And a toy started in uh, June of 72. So I was going into my senior year as an acting major with Roz and Tony Wilson was also teaching. And Sheila McCarthy was in that program at the same time I was and Bob Ball who you know works for Yojima. Bobby and I go way back to then. And so what happened was in June of 72, Roz and Tony got a phone call from some friends of theirs who were in Albany at an international convention of children's theaters. About five or six years before that, in the mid-60s or so, uh, an organization called ASITEJ, which are French initials for basically association of theater for young people kind of thing. It started in France, I guess, but there was this international organization that year. They still do it. It still exists. And they have a biannual Congress, international Congress, they call it. And all of their member theaters, which are represented by at least 200 countries around the world that have theater for young audiences. So they were having a conference in North America. There was one meeting, I think in Montreal or something, but there was a meeting in Albany. So these friends called Roz and Tony. Literally, this is the, the simplicity of the story. They said, you must come to Albany and see this work that was being done because the Moscow Children's Theater was there and the Ankaranga Theater from Romania. And you know, I figured at that time, this was still Iron Curtain, East West kind of stuff. So all of these companies were coming to this international meeting. So Roz and Tony literally got on a Greyhound bus, went to Albany, spent four or five days there meeting people and seeing plays that were produced by, for the most part, European and Eastern Bloc kinds of countries and a few other places, I believe. And they were so moved and excited and inspired by the work that they saw being done that on the bus ride back from Albany, they decided to start a company in Buffalo because there was no such thing. And they wanted their students to be part of it. They, you know, I don't, I don't think they thought too far out. They just wanted an opportunity. 
and they were excited about the quality of the work and the meaning of the work. It just got really got turned on to something, something that didn't really happen here. So on the bus ride home, they decided. So within a couple of days, they called five of their students. So I, I got this phone call from Roz and she said, Tony and I are starting this theater company and it's going to be, you know, we're going to perform for kids. We just got back from this conference and we we're just really excited. We want you to be part of it. And I remember saying, okay, <laughs> uh, I was in. And I didn't even know what I'd gotten into. So that phone call put me on the trajectory for most of my life. But children's theater takes a whole different set of skills than adult theater. Here's what happens next. I mean, we were just starting out, but we knew that we had to learn. We had to figure out what this was. And as we were figuring it out and learning from people who were making headway, you know, some of the emerging leaders in the field, we we also had to invent and there was a lot of learning to do. I think it was long about the second year, second or third year, a woman came to town. She was young. She was like us. And her husband was a disc jockey. She was very involved in children's theater. She was from Michigan and she was studying children's theater. She had a whole network of people that she knew in Michigan. There was a lot of, a lot of activity going on at the University of Michigan. And she heard about us because we were performing at the Taylor Theater at the Keenan Center, which was very important back then because there weren't too many venues and they brought us out there. We did lots of shows at the Keenan Center. I mean, we were almost like half like a resident company out there. And so one day we were doing a show there. I'll never forget it. And Lolly, her name is Lolly Smith. She came to see the show and hung around afterwards to talk with us. And she knew so much. And she, she was, she was so happy to connect with us because this is what she wanted to do. And she found herself in Buffalo, New York. There was an actor. He was quite accomplished. He was Romanian. And Lolly's friends from Michigan had met him at the same conference that Roz and Tony had gone to. And he was there performing with a company from Romania. They're a very well-known children's theater. And he was there and they had met him and got to be friends. Anyways, he goes back to Europe. His company goes on tour. He's in Paris and he defects. He gets asylum in Canada. So his name is Gregory. He goes to Canada. And Lolly's friends, because he wasn't that far from where we are right here, we decided to hire him and bring him in to work with Toy and to direct a show for us. Well, given the whole political thing, I mean, we didn't know. We just had this great idea, like, look at this guy who just defected. And he's in Canada. We'll bring him to Buffalo. You know, like, it's crazy. I was like 21 years old. And um, the UN got involved. That's how crazy it got. So through Lolly's friends, somebody knew somebody, and the UN literally got involved, and we had to get permission for Gregory to come to the United States to work with us. And we did it. So he came here. We got a grant from NISCA. All of this happened like in a flash. He defects. He ends up in Canada. We go to the UN. We bring him here. So he spent about two months with us. And the first month was just workshops. And he worked us like so hard, like every day, just, I mean, we, we talked about performing for children. What did that mean? And he was coming from a country that had an approach to doing this. And so he was working with these, you know, American kids. But then a couple of, I remember there was a, a guy who was in this country and he got in touch with Roz. I think it was just all random, but he was from Scotland and he was a street theater performer. He came and spent a whole summer with us. It's just, he's like, we were so lucky. We would just connect like with Lolly and then with Gregory and then with Reg Bolton is in the United States from Scotland. He came and worked with us for summer. We got a grant because it was summer of 75 
and was part of the whole national celebration for the bicentennial. But Reg had worked with us. We spent weeks with him developing the formats for the street theater shows and just working with him on how do you do this? So it was like a whole other skill set. Gregory was one thing. Reg was something else. And then we did this whole summer of, you know, street theater. So I asked Meg, there must have been a lot of challenges along the way. What were the biggest challenges you faced? One of the challenges in the beginning was getting people to take us seriously. And that meant the press. You know, in the beginning, it was not only the press, but audiences. Like, we have to pay for this? Well, it's for kids. Why, why, is, why should it cost anything? And actors as well. I mean, there were people like, well, what do you want? And not taking it seriously, because I think in a lot of ways, they didn't know better. It wasn't part of training programs anywhere. And it just seems so simple. It was an enormous challenge in the beginning. It was not easy. We were learning ourselves. We had to educate ourselves as artists, how to do this well. Then we had to explore why are we doing it? What does it mean? How can we speak about it? Like, how do we know if we're doing it right? Like all of those kinds of challenges. And then you've got the world saying, why are you bothering? Because children deserve to have their stories told. A a book or a, a story that means something to them, why shouldn't that story be told with as much concern and respect as anybody? I mean, why shouldn't they have this? I think people learn a lot about their kids when you share a play with them. In fact, that even happened to Terry Dorn. God bless him. But he, he came to review a show and Terry brought his young son with him. And I, I have never forgotten this. They were watching the show and during the play, there's this moment and the little boy climbed up in his father's lap and just held on to him. And I thought, Terry Dorn, I've got you now. I don't need to explain anything else, Terry. That's it. Now you get it. That's why kids need their own theater. And he did get it. He was he was became very supportive after that. So then Meg Pantera, a name very often associated with the early days of Toy, she took over as the artistic director. It was 1986, maybe? 85, 86. I just re-engaged with Toy through Meg Pantera. So she she was actually a student of mine going way back. When I was at Damon, I was teaching some classes in South Buffalo and acting, and she was a student in that program. She got into the theater program at Damon when I was still, during that four-year period when Toy had started and I was there, that's when she was a student. So she got more involved with Toy after I was gone. They had just come into the Franklin Street Theater when when I was got re-engaged. So she and I got together and... At that point, they needed uh, somebody to do marketing. So I came back as marketing, and that's when Meg Pantero was still the artistic director. She was artistic director for about four years. Roz just kind of stepped back, but the, the children's theater part of it had really been reduced because they were doing children's theater. But while the company was at the Center Theater, they started doing Toy After Dark, and that started to really curve everything more towards adult plays and the children's programming was something that was just being done in schools so when i came there we were doing some things but the the real mission of the company had been lost so then how does meg quinn come back to toy and refocus its direction so colleen fahey who was the managing director at the time called me and because i had been so engaged with everything you know the founding and stuff So I got uh, two of the people I was, uh, two of my colleagues from school, we went into, in fact, I just found all this stuff the other day. 
we went in and organized um, a, con a, a consulting project to help Toy decide whether or not it should close. And we did all of this, these sessions with people trying generating ideas like what did toy mean and what resources did it have and what were the challenges and could they be overcome and was it worth doing it? So we went through this process and at the end, enough people had decided and really felt strongly that the company should regroup and get back on track and refocus, get back to what it was supposed to be about. And I had no intention. I mean, my, I was going to finish my degree and, and go into organizational training and development. That's where I was headed. But no, um, I, I remember uh, that, long story short, um, Colleen Fahey asked me to uh, direct a show. And I hadn't directed in a long time because I had really pulled away from, you know, the production part of stuff. And um, I felt... I said, all right, you know, I'll just until they could find somebody, an artistic director, until they could regroup and do that, just to keep the company's presence, to begin to pull it back and redefine its purpose and all of those things. So I came back and directed a show. One thing led to another, and the board and Roz and Tony kind of leaned on me and said, you know, would you take the job as artistic director? I probably should have run the other way, but I, I did. I think because I had been part of the founding of it and the, the old feelings about why we had done this, I was, that was my heart. I had a sense of what we could do, even though things had gotten off track. I still believed the same things that I had discovered you know, years before. So I asked Meg, what do you suppose was a major turning point for the theater of youth? And then I would say the next major thing that happened was Chet came to work for us at Toys. So we had a production manager, we had a sound designer, which was is so important in theater for young audiences. I mean, the plays need to be glued, or the, the scenes need to be glued in a lot of ways, because so many adaptations are books. And, you know, so sound is really important. But the next big thing was Ken Shaw. And that was such a random thing. We were, we were going to do The Secret Garden, and I remember Colleen Fahey was the managing director, and she said to me, we've got to get, a, there weren't too many designers in Buffalo. So through Meg Pantera, there was a connection with the Shaw Festival, and Colleen knew some of the same people, so Meg was gone. But Colleen said to me, we've got to, we've got to put the money into bringing in a great designer to do this show, The Secret Garden. So she contacted somebody she knew at the Shaw Festival who put us in touch with Ken Shaw. I call Ken Shaw. He doesn't know me from anybody. I offer him a job. He things in Canada at that point were kind of he, there was nothing really going on for him, and he was in Toronto. We made all the arrangements to bring him here to direct or to uh, design the show, which was great. That's when everything was born. I mean, Ken and Chet and I, you know, that was this the three elements that the that the art needed. I remember I picked him up, picked him up at the bus station. We'd never met. I said, how am I going to know you? He was like in his 20s at the time. I mean, we were, we've been together like 26 years. And uh, he said, I have really long hair. And he had this long, long blonde hair and a big braid down the back. And there he was. And we hit it off. I mean, we just, he and Chet and I just hit it off. What we accomplished at the Franklin's, and we were there about seven years before we went to the Allendale. But that changed everything. That was it. I mean, that was the, the magic pill that made everything happen. 
Raz always said this. It's like when we would be down and out and ready to call it quits, we would connect with somebody. Somebody would enter into the organization and the spark would take off again. The spark would take off again. But there were a lot of other in-between steps as they searched for various venues. Here's Meg once more to talk about the venue search. We performed it. Damon, they would let us use like the musical fair theater, the Damon Little Theater. We would perform there, but we had to do it on the basis of what the schedule in the theater department was. And, you know, the college was, uh, thank God they were as, as flexible and inviting as they were because we would, we had no money. We had no place to go. I was with Toy for the first four years and we were still at Damon. And then I left. When I was gone, it was actually going to close up. And Saul Elkin got in touch with Roz and Tony because there was some money available, a federal program called CETA, Comprehensive Employment Training Act, I think it was called. And uh, Toy was eligible for money. So they got a grant and Saul invited Toy to the Center Theater before it was called the Pfeiffer, when it was the Center Theater. Toy moved there. And they were in residence there for about 10 years. And then from there, moved to the Franklin Street Theater. When Toy moved in to the Franklin Street, they renamed the building at that point. So it became the Franklin Street Theater. The Allendale project had begun, but that took, that took I don't know how long, was it 15 years or something? I mean, it was such a political football, it just took forever to do it. And something that Toy became very famous for were their talkbacks. After every show, kids would get to ask questions. Sometimes adults would get to ask questions, too. I asked Meg how this all began. I would be down front ready to do the question and answer part, and I would introduce what we were going to do, and then the actors would take over, because I thought, the audience doesn't want to hear from me, they want the actors to tell them how things happen. I wrote a script, and the actors would learn, and we would do this whole presentation for about 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, depending. It became unique to us. And I would watch faces and I would see all these adults. Wow. How did they do that? And I thought I'm doing more for the business of theater right now by the respect that was happening for people going, look how they did that. Like, like these are smart people. This, this isn't just think something anybody can do. They, they know what they're doing. I, I hate saying to kids, it's just theater magic. No, it isn't. It's not theory. We do stuff. And here's how we problem solved it. And I would use those words, you know, and say, this is how we, we had to be creatively and creative doesn't mean artistic. It means how'd you problem solve it? You know, what were the, what were all the possibilities? Why did we do it this way instead of that way? I think when you answer those questions and you feed that curiosity and they, they see the possibilities, then they've taken another giant step in their own creative process. Now, we'll be hearing a little more from Meg later on when we talk about their move into the Allendale Theater, but I wanted to get all of the early stuff in and have her talk a little bit about how it began, what the turning points were, the challenges, and finally, I asked her, what do you think is the value of children's theater? In this country, the idea of performing for children had been around. I mean, there had been, in fact, the Minneapolis Children's Theater had started in the mid-60s, and that's still a huge operation. I mean, millions of dollars of budget and full equity company. I mean, it's it's really one of probably the most important, the leader in this country. And they had already begun. So things were happening, but by comparison to what was happening in around the world, this country was fledgling. We were just kind of figuring things out. And one of the, the thing that connected to me where I was excited about 
was that what the the Europeans and all these folks that Roz and Tony had met, the, the conversation was around the best actors, the best writers, the, the playwrights, the designers, and other countries felt it was a great privilege to perform for children. Governments put a lot of money into it to make sure that plays that were uh, the theater was available to kids to come and see or that things would go into the schools. But these the most accomplished actors, people felt it was a great privilege to perform for kids because you were speaking to the next generation. You were helping to grow and develop and educate children. And that really meant something. Children deserve to have their stories told. Yes, they do. Thank you, Meg. We'll hear more from Meg Queen a little later on in the timeline when the history of toy continues. Let's move on in the timeline. Another incredibly influential person. I cannot tell you how many times this person's name came up, no matter who I was talking to, as a person who was extremely influential and helpful to the Buffalo Theater community. It's Neil Raddus. And Neil, after spending a good deal of time in community theater, in 1973 he forms his Tabletop Players to perform dinner theater atop one M&T Plaza at, uh, and at Mr. Anthony's and in Niagara Falls. Here's Neil to tell you a little bit about how he started in community theater. In the 50s and 60s, other than studio theater, which became Studio Arena Theater, Opportunities for local theater artists were in community theater, with venerable companies such as Amherst Players, Town Players of Kenton, Hamburg Players, and Aurora Players. All those companies were founded somewhere between the 1930s and 1960s. My career in theater started there and has very much paralleled the progression of the Buffalo theater scene from community theater to dinner theater to small professional theater. Now, I thought that was a really interesting point that Neil made, that his career sort of paralleled Buffalo's, how he went from community theater to dinner theater to small professional theater. Here's Neil talking about his start in dinner theater. A group called the DJ Players had been doing dinner theater at the Plaza Suite Restaurant, which at the time was downtown on the top floor of the M&T building. I got wind of the fact that they were leaving Plaza Suite, so I made an appointment to meet the restaurant manager and made a pitch. I had the advantage of knowing that I had a production ready to put on a stage, so the very first show of my tabletop productions company was Once Upon a Mattress. From there, over the next 10 years, along with choreographer Lynn Curzio Fermato, musical director Kenneth Young, and my first wife Joyce, who functioned as our business manager, we developed four dinner theater companies that performed at the Plaza Suite, Mr. Anthony's in Amherst, the Ramada Inn in Niagara Falls, and later downtown Buffalo at the Trough. My good friend, the talented John Samazi, along with his buddy Tom Dudzik, operated the other dinner theater company in town. For a while there, between our two companies, we had as many as seven or eight dinner theaters operating simultaneously. It was the first opportunity for local actors to get paid for their work. Many of the best actors that are working in town today started out on those dinner theater stages. And finally, from Neil today, for this segment, we're going to hear about how small professional theater seemed to blossom after community theater and dinner theater took hold in Buffalo. Following the boom in dinner theater of the 70s, small professional theaters were beginning to blossom. 
David Lamb founded the Kavanoki Theater. Lorna Hill created Ujima Company. Rosalind Kramer founded Theater of Youth. And of course, Saul created Shakespeare in Delaware Park. Shays Buffalo Theater had just escaped the wrecking ball, but it wasn't ready to operate. And Studio Arena had moved into the building at 710 Main, which had been the Palace Burlesque Theater. It was around that time, or just a year or two later, a few other companies were being created in the theater district, uh, though they didn't last. Irv Weinstein and Bryna Weiss had the Playhouse for a while on Main Street, and Erica Wall had a cabaret on Franklin Street for a little while, too. And we will get back to Neil Radis in a little while when he moves into an actual theater called The Alleyway. And I think that's where we're going to leave it for this episode of Off-Road. We are up to, believe it or not, only 1973. And we have so many other theaters to talk about in the next several podcasts. So thanks once again for joining us here on Off-Road for a, a history of Buffalo Theater. Continuing every two weeks and, of course, sponsored by Road Less Traveled Productions. We hope you can continue with us. We hope you can join us because there's so much more to learn and so much more to hear in the next episode. Episode 4, continuing in 1973 when Mr. David Lamb comes over to hang out at Deuville College. Until then, this is RLTP's Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano. Pete Pomisano.